Chapter Nineteen of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Nineteen. Having gratified my curiosity in this respect, Wallace proceeded to remind me of the circumstances of our first interview. He had entertained doubts whether I was the person whom he had met at Lesher's. I acknowledged myself to be the same, and inquired, in my turn, into the motives of his conduct on that occasion. "'I confess,' said he, with some hesitation, "'I meant not only to sport with your simplicity and ignorance. You must not imagine, however, that my stratagem was deep-laid and deliberately executed. My professions at the tavern were sincere. I meant not to injure, but to serve you.' It was not till I reached the head of the staircase that the mischievous contrivance occurred. I foresaw nothing at the moment but ludicrous mistakes and embarrassment. The scheme was executed almost at the very moment it occurred. After I had returned to the parlor, Thetford charged me with the delivery of a message in a distant quarter of the city. It was not till I had performed this commission and had set out on my return that I fully revolved the consequences likely to flow from my project. That Thetford and his wife would detect you in their bedchamber was unquestionable. Perhaps, weary of my long delay, you would have fairly undressed and gone to bed. The married couple would have made preparation to follow you, and when the curtain was undrawn, would discover a robust youth fast asleep in their place. These images, which just before excited my laughter, now produced a very different emotion. I dreaded some fatal catastrophe from the fiery passions of Thetford. In the first transports of his fury he might pistol you, or, at least, might command you to be dragged to prison. I now heartily repented of my jest, and hastened home that I might prevent as far as possible the evil effects that might flow from it. The acknowledgment of my own agency in this affair would, at least, transfer Thetford's indignation to myself, to whom it was equitably due. The married couple had retired to their chamber, and no alarm or confusion had followed. This was an inexplicable circumstance. I waited with patience till the morning should furnish the solution of the difficulty. The morning arrived. A strange event had indeed taken place in their bedchamber. They found an infant asleep in their bed. Thetford had been roused twice in the night, once by a noise in the closet, and afterwards by a noise at the door. Some connection between these sounds and the foundling was naturally suspected. In the morning the closet was examined, and a coarse pair of shoes was found on the floor. The chamber door, which Thetford had locked in the evening, was discovered to be open, as likewise a window in the kitchen. These appearances were a source of wonder and doubt to others, but were perfectly intelligible to me. I rejoiced that my stratagem had no more dangerous consequence 
and admired the ingenuity and perseverance with which you had extricated yourself from so critical a state. This narrative was the only verification of my own guesses. Its facts were quickly supplanted in my thoughts by the disastrous picture he had drawn of the state of the hospital. I was confounded and shocked by the magnitude of this evil. The cause of it was obvious. The wretches whom money could purchase were, of course, licentious and unprincipled. Superintended and controlled they might be useful instruments, but that superintendence could not be bought. What qualities were requisite in the governor of such an institution? He must have zeal, diligence, and perseverance. He must act from lofty and pure motives. He must be mild and firm, intrepid and compliant. One perfectly qualified for the office it is desirable, but not possible, to find. A dispassionate and honest zeal in the cause of duty and humanity may be of eminent utility. Am I not endowed with this zeal? Cannot my feeble efforts obviate some portion of this evil? No one has hitherto claimed this disgustful and perilous situation. My powers and discernment are small, but if they be honestly exerted they cannot fail to be somewhat beneficial. The impulse produced by these reflections was to hasten to the city hall and make known my wishes. This impulse was controlled by recollections of my own indisposition and of the state of Wallace. To deliver this youth to his friends was the strongest obligation. When this was discharged, I might return to the city and acquit myself of more comprehensive duties. Wallace had now enjoyed a few hours' rest and was persuaded to begin the journey. It was now noonday and the sun darted insupportable rays. Wallace was more sensible than I of their unwholesome influence. We had not reached the suburbs when his strength was wholly exhausted, and, had I not supported him, he would have sunk upon the pavement. My limbs were scarcely less weak, but my resolutions were much more strenuous than his. I made light of his indisposition, and endeavored to persuade him that his vigor would return in proportion to his distance from the city. The moment we should reach a shade, a short respite would restore us to health and cheerfulness. Nothing could revive his courage or induce him to go on. To return or to proceed was equally impracticable. But should he be able to return, where should he find a retreat? The danger of relapse was imminent. His own chamber at Thetford's was unoccupied. If he could regain this house, might I not procure him a physician and perform for him the part of nurse? His present situation was critical and mournful. To remain in the street exposed to the malignant fervors of the sun was not to be endured. To carry him in my arms exceeded my strength. Should I not claim the assistance of the first passenger that appeared? At that moment a horse and chaise passed us. The vehicle proceeded at a quick pace. He that rode in it might afford us the succor that we needed. He might be persuaded to deviate from his course and convey the helpless Wallace to the house we had just left. This thought instantly impelled me forward. 
Feeble as I was, I even ran with speed in order to overtake the vehicle. My purpose was effected with the utmost difficulty. It fortunately happened that the carriage contained but one person who stopped at my request. His countenance and guise was mild and encouraging. "'Good friend!' I exclaimed. "'Here is a young man too indisposed to walk. I want him carried to his lodgings. Will you, for money or for charity, allow him a place in your chaise and set him down where I shall direct?' Observing tokens of hesitation, I continued, "'You need have no fears to perform this office. He is not sick, but merely feeble. I will not ask twenty minutes, and you may ask what reward you think proper.' Still he hesitated to comply. His business, he said, had not led him into the city. He merely passed along the skirts of it, whence he conceived that no danger would arise.' He was desirous of helping the unfortunate, but he could not think of risking his own life in the cause of a stranger, when he had a wife and children depending on his existence and exertions for bread. It gave him pain to refuse, but he thought his duty to himself and to others required that he should not hazard his safety by compliance. This plea was irresistible. The mildness of his manner showed that he might have been overpowered by persuasion or tempted by reward. I would not take advantage of his tractability, but should have declined his assistance, even if it had been spontaneously offered. I turned away from him in silence and prepared to return to the spot where I had left my friend. The man prepared to resume his way. In this perplexity the thought occurred to me that— since this person was going into the country, he might possibly consent to carry Wallace along with him. I confided greatly in the salutary influence of rural airs. I believed that debility constituted the whole of his complaint, that continuance in the city might occasion his relapse, or at least procrastinate his restoration. I once more addressed myself to the traveller, and inquired in what direction and how far he was going. To my unspeakable satisfaction, his answer informed me that his home lay beyond Mr. Hadwin's, and that this road carried him directly past that gentleman's door. He was willing to receive Wallace into his chaise, and to leave him at his uncle's. This joyous and auspicious occurrence surpassed my fondest hopes. I hurried with the pleasing tidings to Wallace, who eagerly consented to enter the carriage. I thought not at the moment of myself, or how far the same means of escaping from the danger might be used. The stranger could not be anxious on my account, and Wallace's dejection and weakness may apologize for his not soliciting my company, or expressing his fears for my safety. He was no sooner seated than the traveller hurried away. I gazed after them, motionless and mute, till the carriage, turning a corner, passed beyond my sight. I had now leisure to revert to my own condition and to ruminate on that series of abrupt and diversified events that had happened during the few hours which had been passed in the city. The end of my coming was thus speedily and satisfactorily accomplished. My hopes and fears had rapidly fluctuated, but, respecting this young man, had now subsided into calm and propitious certainty. 
Before the decline of the sun he would enter his paternal roof and diffuse ineffable joy throughout that peaceful and chaste asylum. This contemplation, though rapturous and soothing, speedily gave way to reflections on the conduct which my duty required, and the safe departure of Wallace afforded me liberty to pursue. To offer myself as superintendent of the hospital was still my purpose— the languors of my frame might terminate in sickness, but this event it was useless to anticipate. The lofty sight and pure airs of Bush Hill might tend to dissipate my languors and restore me to health. At least while I had power, I was bound to exert it to the wisest purposes. I resolved to seek the city hall immediately, and for that end crossed the intermediate fields which separated Sassafras from Chestnut Street. More urgent considerations had diverted my attention from the money which I bore about me, and from the image of the desolate lady to whom it belonged. My intentions with regard to her were the same as ever, but now it occurred to me with new force that my death might preclude an interview between us, and that it was prudent to dispose in some useful way of the money which would otherwise be left to the sport of chance. The evils which had befallen this city were obvious and enormous. Hunger and negligence had exasperated the malignity and facilitated the progress of the pestilence. Could this money be more usefully employed than in alleviating these evils? During my life I had no power over it, but my death would justify me in prescribing the course which it should take. How was this course to be pointed out? How might I place it so that I should affect my intentions without relinquishing the possession during my life? These thoughts were superseded by a tide of new sensations. The weight that incommoded my brows and my stomach was suddenly increased. My brain was usurped by some benumbing power, and my limbs refused to support me. My pulsations were quickened, and the prevalence of fever could no longer be doubted. Till now I had entertained a faint hope that my indisposition would vanish of itself. This hope was at an end. The grave was before me, and my projects of curiosity or benevolence were to sink into oblivion. I was not bereaved of the powers of reflection. The consequences of lying in the road, friendless and unprotected, were sure. The first passenger would notice me and hasten to summon one of those carriages which are busy night and day in transporting its victims to the hospital. This fate was beyond all others abhorrent to my imagination. To hide me under some roof, where my existence would be unknown and unsuspected, and where I might perish unmolested and in quiet, was my present wish. Thetford's or Medlicote's might afford me such an asylum, if it were possible to reach it. I made the most strenuous exertions, but they could not carry me forward more than a hundred paces. Here I rested on steps which— on looking up, I perceived to belong to Welbeck's house. This incident was unexpected. It led my reflections into a new train. To go farther in the present condition of my frame was impossible. I was well acquainted with this dwelling. 
all its avenues were closed. Whether it had remained unoccupied since my flight from it I could not decide. It was evident that, at present, it was without inhabitants. Possibly it might have continued in the same condition in which Welbeck had left it. Beds or sofas might be found on which a sick man might rest and be fearless of intrusion. This inference was quickly overturned by the obvious supposition that every avenue was bolted and locked. This, however, might not be the condition of the bathhouse, in which there was nothing that required to be guarded with unusual precautions. I was suffocated by inward and scorched by external heat, and the relief of bathing and drinking appeared inestimable. The value of this prize, in addition to my desire to avoid the observation of passengers, made me exert all my remnant of strength. Repeated efforts at length enabled me to mount the wall, and placed me, as I imagined, in security. I swallowed large draughts of water as soon as I could reach the well. The effect was, for a time, salutary and delicious. My fervors were abated, and my faculties relieved from the weight which had lately oppressed them. My present condition was unspeakably more advantageous than the former. I did not believe that it could be improved till, casting my eye vaguely over the building, I happened to observe the shutters of a lower window partly opened. Whether this was occasioned by design or by accident, there was no means of deciding. Perhaps in the precipitation of the latest possessor this window had been overlooked. Perhaps it had been unclosed by violence and afforded entrance to a robber. By what means soever it had happened, it undoubtedly afforded ingress to me. I felt no scruple in profiting by this circumstance. My purposes were not dishonest. I should not injure or purloin anything. It was laudable to seek a refuge from the well-meant persecutions of those who governed the city. All I sought was the privilege of dying alone." Having gotten in at the window, I could not but remark that the furniture and its arrangements had undergone no alteration in my absence. I moved softly from one apartment to another, till at length I entered that which had formerly been Welbeck's bedchamber. The bed was naked of covering. The cabinets and closets exhibited their fastenings broken. Their contents were gone." Whether these appearances had been produced by midnight robbers, or by the ministers of law and the rage of creditors of Welbeck, was a topic of fruitless conjecture. My design was now effected. This chamber should be the scene of my disease and my refuge from the charitable cruelty of my neighbors. My new sensations conjured up the hope that my indisposition might prove a temporary evil. Instead of pestilential or malignant fever, it might be a harmless intermittent. Time would ascertain its true nature. Meanwhile, I would turn the carpet into a coverlet, supply my pitcher with water, and administer without sparing and without fear that remedy which was placed within my reach. End of chapter 19